Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. The second floor of the AC building. This is Election Shock Therapy. We're back. Christmas edition. Sound the bells. Woo-hoo. Yay. Um... I'm going to give you one vote off the island, get rid of it, Christmas Carol. Sam, what are you getting rid of? Oh, get rid of? Yeah. Oh, oh man. Can you come back to me? Excise from the canon. Oh, actually. Uh, oh, there's so when many. When you say Christmas Carol, does that mean Christmas songs? You like, get, you, but, uh, novelty songs don't count. We know people hate those. Okay. Uh, I am going to say, I actually, I, I don't really like the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Same. Oh, that song Ooh, good sucks. Call. Yeah. Good call. Okay. That's my vote, though. Yeah, oh, that's a good, call. oh good, good so, call. So you have another one. I think so. Just as long yeah. as you keep the crappy Paul McCartney song in the mix, that's okay. <laughs> that actually was mine. <laughs> Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Yeah, but like I hate it so much. Yeah, no, that's that's the worst. It's awful. Probably. It's awful. But like you, twice a twice a Christmas season is fine. I think twice a lifetime was too no, many. No, come on. <laughs> no, twice a Christmas yeah, season it is never is good. Yeah, never. Now, uh, actually, uh, to not to change your question, but. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm all for, you know, democracy and everything, but Sam Albury, I'm all for democracy, but, <laughs> but um, I would be really okay if we um, maybe put a committee together. Okay. To like, we could eliminate a lot of Christmas music. Like a lot of stuff doesn't need to get remade. And I don't even mean like, I actually think if you write a new Christmas song, Go with God. That's great. Like we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but like, but like, we don't need because any Christmas album yeah. is a cash grab. Yeah, oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. Like, like we yeah. already have. And in truth, right. like it's in the forties and fifties when we've recorded most of the Christmas music we need. Yeah. Like we actually don't need multiple versions of almost any <laughs> Christmas song. So I yeah. would be okay if we just really called that stuff out. And yeah. you know, like. If you want to be part of the Christmas canon, like you got to earn it. You have to mm-hmm. come up with something new. You can't just be like, "Here's our take on the little drummer boy." Like, no, you don't get to do that. <laughs> that would be my non-democratic uh, thought for today. Speaking speaking That's of good. things we could get rid of, I think little drummer boy qualifies there. No, could, I love little could, drummer boy. We could dump little drummer boy. I think. Pum pum pum. Yeah. Oh, come yeah. on, man. Okay, so <clears throat> so we've lost. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. We've lost the little drummer boy. We could we could under we, I protest. Think, I think I think I think we could also lose uh, the hippopotamus. For Christmas, <gasps> yeah, you shut your mouth. Yeah, we could lose. All right, that. that's almost that's a novelty song. Right? Yeah, I don't yeah, think that's okay. That one doesn't count. All right, all right. And I can't remember the title of the one I, I dislike, but it's um that one where they count up to ten, like ten for the ten who came down. From oh yeah, yeah, that's that. That's born, the, the numbers born, they're talking about. Makes sense. Yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know the that numbers. Song. Don't well, really lucky you because <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense. And yeah. like the numbers just feel like what they're. Naming off seems really arbitrary. That it's a Sunday away. school song. Okay. It's a Sunday school Christmas song that just needs to not. Okay. Yeah. But, but yeah, but it's really because 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 there's like six for the six that had to get fixed. And it's like, yeah, I'm like, what, what in the world? Mean? Yeah, what does yeah. that mean? I've never heard a good explanation. Well, it was for the that healings list. that Jesus performed. Oh, I don't know. I'm just making that up. I, I was gonna know. say I, I think he healed more yeah. than six people. So. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> so so Chris, I've, I've vetoed your simply having a wonderful Christmas time. So you can pick another song. What did it, um, <laughs> I vetoed your oh, selection. Oh, you're of saving that. it. You're using your save card. Oh. This is like this is like the voice or something like that. <laughs> Again, I don't love that song. It's kind of awful, but like I need it twice at Christmas. Do you oh, really? I do. Why? Why? Twice. Right. At, oh. I don't understand. See, that. well, I'm talking, but like I listen to Christmas music in volume, like a lot of it. So like. <laughs> playing that twice and you know what it's not a remake so it's not like it's like it's wow true. he really ruined Nat King Cole's version of I'm sorry <laughs> wonderful Christmas yeah. time right? he's ruined like, his own yeah. yeah okay can I can yeah, I take you a little bit it's a tiny bit of a trail here sure do you know uh, the movie Love Actually yeah do you know the fake Christmas song uh, Christmas is all around us that uh, um Figures into the into the sort of, sort of plot. I'm of that gonna movie. amend my yeah to yeah. I know that movie exists. Not yeah, I've seen it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm in that category. Um, okay. okay. Well, there's a there's a fake uh, Christmas song that Bill Nye sings in the. Uh, he plays not an the eight, science guy. The other Bill Nye. The actor, the okay. British actor. Okay. <laughs> there's a chance though. There's a lot of people in guy. that movie. There's there a is chance. a lot of people. Is not Bill Nye the science guy? Um, <laughs> That's from my mind. He, the, the, the actor plays a sort of aging rock star who is doing a cash grab, and so he re-records one of his famous hits, 
with Christmas lyrics in an attempt to <laughs> get, a, get to to get the top song for Christmas time and kind of revive his career. It's the song is intentionally bad, mm-hmm. but I was listening to a. Um, uh, a, a group who covered that song, mm-hmm. and I, it kind of grew on me. So um, <laughs> okay, I, but that's not what I get rid of. What I would get rid of is I would nuke oh. the. Wait, wait. Okay, mm-hmm. you're not going to say Wham's Last Christmas, are you? No. Okay, good. I would nuke the Christmas <laughs> shoes from Orbit. Oh, and yeah. walk away. Oh, Don't even man. know what that is, but okay. Oh, Sam, that, Christmas how shoes are. How do you not? Sorry, I should have thought of that one. I would have voted Christmas that. Music. But you already said Paul McCartney, so your credibility Twice on good Christmas music is already <laughs> is already blown to smithereens. Voice of Christmas. <laughs> yeah, but you're. That's a very good call. The Christmas shoes. Is a I agree. Truly awful yeah. song. I agree. And, it, and it's particularly awful because it sticks in your head. And then you find yourself singing it, and you like hate yourself because you're like, I don't want to be singing this song. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you are. Okay, it's a Listen, powerful. It's a little positivity before we actually yeah, get right, into Grinches, politics. Let's, uh... yeah, like, so, so, so what's your what's your favorite Christmas song? Oh, oh, that's oh come, 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 Emmanuel. That's a good one. Uh, that was good. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, that's my favorite Advent song. If I'm gonna be technical, oh, oh, um, but wow. I'm gonna go Hark, Hark the Herald uh, Angels Sing for that is the winner, that. Andy. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, all right, all right. It's just such a great. I mean, theologically, it's such a great song. Well, and, it, and the, I like the fact that it is like heavily theological. Yeah. Like it's pretty solid. It's, we I mean, opened we opened the yeah. Advent season at church with that song, and I yeah. just thought, all right, it's yep. going to be a good Advent. But veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. It's Charles great Wesley line. knew what it's he was doing. Line. Yeah, I guess, and and I'd have to think about this. Actually, there's so many songs that I really like. Uh, like my gut reaction, and this is purely because there are like three versions that I love. Is actually We Three Kings, yeah, um, really? and it's not, and and it's, and um, and basically part of that is because there have been so many good covers of it, so many good versions of it that I sure. really like. There's a jazz version that is great from um, Harry Connick um, that is actually just fantastic, mm-hmm. and uh, and then there's also like an orchestral version that I love, and the actually one was great. Even DC Talk <laughs> has covered uh, We Three Kings. Okay, you're on thin ice now. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying though, right, it's there. Right. I'm just saying there's, there, I'm just saying there's a lot of them, and I think a lot of them are really good. So okay. yeah. All right. Um, I, as an IR guy, I just have one question for you, Mitch. Where is Orientar? <laughs> uh, Why do they know. have a tripartite monarchy system? <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll grant it's not, it's not necessarily the, theologi- the most theologically solid okay, song. Uh, I'll easily grant that. I'm just right. saying, if you're looking for fun Christmas songs. Or factually songs, solid song. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah. I mean, the same. I mean, the but same. it is fun to sing. Yeah, I'll give you that. And gentlemen, <laughs> with that, I will bid you adieu. All right. <laughs> Bye, Sam. Oh. <laughs> hey Sam, we're gonna actually end this with another song that I hate, my grown up Christmas wish. All oh right. man, oh. yes, thank you. Good good bad? Good, good cut. All right. no, it's a bad song. Not oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> bad song, good cut. Sam was off mic there, but he agrees that that's a bad song. All right. Uh guys, we can't talk about Christmas carols the whole time, but no, I will no, bust no. out the proverbial eggnog here for you. Ooh, um, I wish you were, were busting out the literal eggnog. No, I don't have any literal eggnog oh. in here. Um but I have. But here's uh, here's some things we're not going to talk about today. Okay. But we need to acknowledge that they're happening. Uh, John Conyers, uh, who is 114,000 years old, yep, um, the is dean of the house. D- is a member of the house is stepping down um, because of some old but valid um, um, uh, sexual uh, indiscretion claims. I, I want to be careful here. I'm going to. I'm probably going to um, um, be in politics in my language here. In some cases, there are accusations around swirling around American society of sexual assault, in some cases sexual harassment, in some cases sexual impropriety. In the interest of not adjudicating amongst those three sets of accusations, uh, forgive me, please, uh, listeners, if I in, in, uh, in discretionary use the wrong term to apply the specific accusations. But Conyers has been accused, the, the accusations appear credible, he's stepping down today. Mm-hmm. And he's the senior member of Congress um, yes. by about a decade, I think. I mean, I think the next senior is 10 years behind him. So he's been in since 65. He was a leader in the civil rights movement in the 60s. So this is a, a big historical moment, but we're not really going to talk about it. <laughs> well, we just... There's not we'll a, lot, you. a lot much more. There's to not a lot more to say. Uh, we, we, we we're going to say nothing more we of, of, of Garrison Keillor or Al Franken, um, both of whom should retire to some quiet lake near Wobegon. Um, <laughs> hmm. yeah, and make hot dish because uh, that's what we do in this state. Tater tots are fine. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. As long as they Smash keep their, meat, as as long as they keep their tater tots to themselves. Um, <laughs> who uh, and and then um, but the one we do want to talk about is. Um, you know which allegations have not prevented someone from a political career is Roy Moore, who is 
Um, Roy like Moore is, senator is from Alabama. back in good graces. No, that's not true. He's, <laughs> he's um, back in the fold. How's that? Yeah, I mean, oh, you yeah. have this weird juxtaposition of stories in the last, you know, 24, 48 hours, um, where on the one hand, he there's a, another, you know, credible, not really accusation, I wouldn't call it, but somebody said, look, I mean, I dated him when he was 34 and I was 17, which is, you know, I mean, not illegal and, you know, that's a little weird, but not... Not a little weird. wrong. <laughs> well, more than a little weird, right? Okay. But but not but not wrong in the same way that some of the other stuff is. But but the point is the point she's making is that Roy Moore lied about this, right? I mean, he said I don't know any of these people. I didn't mm-hmm. date them, right? So I mean, you know, she's she's not accusing him of anything of any indiscretion. I mean, she was you know she was wanting to date him at the time, and um, again, you can question the wisdom of all that. But um, but the point is he lied about it, and he said right. I did not. I don't know these people. I didn't date her, and. You know, she's got really pretty solid evidence um, that this is not true, um, which kind of reinforces, I think, the narrative about Roy Moore, even though this isn't a new accusation of impropriety as such. Right. Um, so you have that story. And then on top of that, of course, because of Trump's increasing support of Roy Moore, the RNC has jumped back in in um, favor of him. Um, and also probably because he's he looks likely to win. Okay, I want to hit pause there because we have I have a real political science question to ask here because for um, for a little over a month since this scandal has broken, uh, the Senate leadership has been nothing short of hostile to Roy Moore, and this is another yep. Republican. So Mitch McConnell has floated ideas about possibly. Um, throwing Roy Moore out of the Senate were mm-hmm. he to win election yep. by refusing to seat him, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, by trying to get someone else to replace him on the Alabama ticket, but coming up short yep. in that arena. And now we're back to the point where, because Donald Trump endorsed Roy Moore and has basically said that he doesn't think the accusations are valid, <clears throat> uh, that the, Republic, the RNC is now back to f- funding or helping support the Roy Moore for Senate campaign. And the ex- one explanation I've heard from this is just that the president's the leader of the party. Donald Trump is the leader mm-hmm. of the Republican Party. Yeah. Is that true? Is that the right explanation? Mm-hmm. Does Donald Trump get to fund whichever candidates he wants because he's the head of the party? Well, I mean, technically, no. But realistically, I mean, you have to pick how much you want to fight the president. So I think it is important to know. I mean, if, and I didn't read these stories super closely, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the RNC has jumped in. I don't think the, the Republicans in the Senate have jumped back behind him. That's correct. Um, so yeah, so that's, you know, the president does have a certain amount of power over the Republican National Committee in terms of appointing their, their leadership and so forth um, because the president is the, you know, the, the head of the party essentially when he's in the office. So so I think, yeah, it's, it's hard for them to act in a way that's wildly different from the president. And since the president has increasingly signaled I'm actively supporting him, yeah, this yeah. makes sense. And, I mean, the other aspect of this, too, is, of course, Mitch McConnell has, as you already said, I think, backed off on um, his discussions of whether he'll of whether he'll seat Roy Moore. So I think between those two things, between Mitch McConnell and yeah. Trump, um, this kind of looks, you know, the, it would be weird, I think, at this point, actually, if the RNC said no, um, just in terms of the institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be odd for, for both of the major leaders in question here, the president and the Senate majority leader, to be saying yes, and then for them mm-hmm. to say, you know, we're still we're still saying no. Now mm-hmm. that doesn't make it the right decision or anything like that, right. but but I think institutionally it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So this is a complicated question, but traditionally, is there an, what is is there a defined relationship between a sitting president and the leadership of that president's party? Is this a is this sort of a de facto kind of thing? Is this uh, is this a is this instantiated within the parties themselves? Could, could we see, for example, a very unpopular Democratic Republican president who is functionally not the leader of their party? Uh, I mean, in principle, it's possible. I mean, you could have uh, um, basically, I mean, the party leadership is a, a lot of it is elected from local party organizations and things like that. So in principle, you could have um, party leadership that is opposed to an unpopular president in practice. Um, the main goal of the party is always, is, you know, and the, and the reason that people get involved with the party is to win elections and mm-hmm. to gain power. And so mm-hmm. if you've won an election and you have power, it's pretty unlikely mm-hmm. um, that you're going to see that. I mean, the exceptions are when there's just, you know, absolute definitive proof of scandal, like when, you know, when you think about Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, part of the reason, uh, you know, basically, basically at that point, nobody's behind him, um, mm-hmm. including sure. the, the people in his party. Um, but, that, but that's pretty rare. Uh, most of the time. Uh, political activists are, you know, they're they're 
they're pretty pragmatic, and their goal is to get power. And if they have, uh, you know, if they've got their person in office, then they're behind them. Yep. Okay. And I think, I mean, just to just to sort of, I mean, just to note this too. I mean, we saw that already with this last election. I mean, a lot of Republicans. <clears throat> I mean, you can just think Reince Priebus. I mean, um, you know, he's very uncomfortable with Trump. He doesn't seem to be particularly happy with Trump. But lo and behold, as soon as Trump is in office, um, he's working for you know, him. Yeah, exactly. Guess who joins him in the White House? So, um, <laughs> so yeah. So I think that when when you look at party leadership. Um, their, their one goal is to gain power, and that should never be um, – nothing else trumps that. So Okay. So um, if we get to the point where there's someone other than the president who is ostensibly standing in for the leadership of the party, it's either because the president has become utterly hamstrung by scandal or yeah. possibly some kind of deep, deep, deep fissure within the party itself. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But again, yeah. I mean, like this, illust- this, this situation illustrates – that that is Mitchell's point that this is almost impossible, right? I mean, right. we have right now a president who does not have deep credibility in his party. He's a former Democrat and independent and member of Ross Perot's Reform Party who has won on this ticket. Um, his popularity ratings in his first year in office are 38%, um, or, you know, hovering around there, give or take a point or two, um, which is really, really low for your first year. Um, and he is mired in scandal. I mean, which we'll talk about Michael Flynn in a minute, right? But um, there's a lot of scandals in you know around him. He's had a very turbulent first year. I mean, you know, really high levels of turnover in the White House and in the cabinet, right? And yet, despite all that, right, um, he is backing Roy Moore, and therefore the RNC falls in line, even though nothing's changed, right? We should note. I mean, nothing's changed. It's not like evidence has come out to suggest Roy Moore is innocent of these charges. Um, if anything, I would say that the evidence has increasingly seem to vindicate the other side, right? Um, that, you know, there's not been a ton of change yeah. in the last couple of weeks, but but it seems to solidify there. More, more does not have a compelling counter case. Um, and yet, despite that, because the president's backing him, um, you know, the, the RNC is falling in line. So that suggests, I mean, that this would be really, really hard to ever see the RNC or, you know, either major parties committee um, challenge a sitting president. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you also see that, I mean, just to think about, uh, just, you know, to use the Nixon case again, um, you know, we tend to sort of look back and, you know, sort of see Nixon with this black hat and all that um, as being sort of, you know, the bad guy. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things to remember is even after the Washington Post had run all of their stories, had basically shown mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, that, that, that there was, uh, that the collusion went all the way up to the top, that there was obstruction of justice and everything yep. else. They'd shown all these things. Um, it actually took, if I remember right, it was, uh, and I haven't, I haven't looked at this recently, but I think it was over a year before the public actually, um, before, before there was even, start, before Nixon's approval ratings really even started to suffer that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and people just didn't care. Um, basically, it wasn't until the Senate and the House really started, uh, and, uh, and others yeah. started conducting serious investigations, that was when um, Nixon started to uh, be in real trouble with the public and so, mm-hmm. and with his party. And so... Uh, you know, I we sh- I don't think we should expect anything different now either. I mean, it's um, yeah, and, and the same thing. I mean, you think about a more recent case. You think about uh, with Bill Clinton. I mean, Bill Clinton had a number of credible accusers, and uh, these um, you know never you know basically part of the reason that Bill Clinton was able to survive so handily um, was that the Democratic Party uh, was right behind him. Basically, mm-hmm. they never mm-hmm. deserted him. Never even yep. um, you know were very quick to to be on the defense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, guys, the uh, dictionary.com named their word of the year as complicit. <laughs> um, I was kind That's of rooting one. for collusion myself. <laughs> um, but, uh, man, if you, uh, if you are following uh, Twitter or if you're, in the, if, you're in the, if you're following political social media, you would think that uh, Michael Flynn – uh, performed uh, the the coup de gras of the of the 2017 political season here, and as political scientists, um, I wanted to gather you guys together today to see if we needed to endorse that view or throw some cold water on it. So, um, what is who's? Uh, let's review for listeners. Um, what's at stake here? What did Michael Flynn do, and how much does this mean? Uh, so Michael Flynn uh, basically has ha, uh, did a couple of things. Um, first of all, and what he's been um, 
indicted on uh, mm-hmm. or pled guilty to was uh, uh, basically lying to the FBI. So he lied about um, uh, a couple of things, but basically that's that's the main thing that he's pleading guilty to. So that's the first thing and perhaps the most public and most recent thing that um, that we know about. But the thing is, we already knew about that. We knew that he had lied to the FBI. This has been old news. Pu- yeah, this is old news. It's been public knowledge for a while. Um, what's what's more interesting and uh, is basically he what what he lied about was his connections to um, various foreign activists, both Turkish mm-hmm. um, and uh, folks in Ukraine, and some of those had ties, it seems, to Russia. And so this is the. Um, you know, basically, it's uh, even though even though he hasn't been in even though he hasn't uh, been indicted on those connections that um, basically you're not supposed to have if you're going to serve in uh, in, in in high White House roles. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, uh, despite that fact, this is essentially what he's confessing to because he said he lied about having them. Right. Um, and so basically, uh, yes. Yeah, so Flynn Flynn is also. Um, been uh, people have also uh, he's also been in trouble because he seems to have taken some money from foreign operatives, which uh, by definition makes you a foreign agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is uh, that's perhaps the most um, uh, dicey of, of all the things. Just the fact that he mm-hmm. was uh, he was on the payroll of other countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, given his security clearance, such a such an interaction require uh, U.S. law requires him to register. As a right. for, as a, a right. foreign agent, yeah, um, and he did not do that either. Right, right. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I one of the things that we've talked about in the past in this podcast is how different the world appears to conservative. Well, I should say supporters of the Trump administration mm-hmm. and uh, opponents of the Trump administration. To say nothing right. of how the world appears differently to liberals and conservatives, right. and we've reflected and talked about some of the psychological reasons why that might be the case, some of the uh, media consumption reasons why that might be the case. And I just I wanted to reinforce that by sharing something here. And I'm, I'm not going to call anybody out, but uh, this showed up in a couple of my conservative friends. Facebook feeds. It's a little picture meme. It was posted by the Daily Caller. The Daily Caller is a um, far right um, uh, propagandist uh, um, uh, news outlet. And I, there, there are certainly propagandist news outlets on the left, too. That's, sure. This is not unique to either side. But Daily Caller definitely fits that category. <clears throat> and the caption says um, one country, two sets of laws. And there's a picture of Donald Trump and a Donald Trump quote. And here's the Donald Trump quote. I will say this. I can't do a good Donald Trump, so I'm just going to read my voice. <laughs> I will say this. Hillary Clinton lied many times to the FBI, and nothing happened to her. Flynn lied, and they destroyed his life. I think it's a shame. Now, there's a couple problems with that quote mm-hmm. in that um, Hillary Clinton was never uh, charged with lying to the FBI. Uh, mm-hmm. Famously, uh, James Comey excoriated her for acting irresponsibly with a right. email server, but... Um, She's not actually acute, uh, not actually charged with lying. No. Um, and Donald Trump is acknowledging that Michael Flynn lied to the FBI. Now, mm-hmm. that, and um, there's famously a tweet that came out earlier this week, which the uh, the province of which has become subject of debate mm-hmm. because the tweet came from Donald Trump's Twitter account, and <laughs> it um, appeared to mm-hmm. acknowledge that he knew that that Michael Flynn was lying mm-hmm. prior uh, to his dismissal as national security advisor. Right. Subsequent to the tweet emerging, uh, one of Donald Trump's lawyers said, yeah, I made that tweet, which raises the question, how many people have access to Donald Trump's Twitter account? And why, as his <laughs> counsel, are you tweeting on his behalf? Yeah. Um, and why tweet so clumsily? <laughs> and, and so, and so I mean, clumsily. Like that's yeah. not lawyer, typical lawyer behavior. Just... All right. So, I'll, so now that I've, now that I've um, uh, problematized the right, let me problematize yeah. the left here. Mm-hmm. Because uh, a lot of my liberal friends are guffawing at what they see as the eminent collapse of the Trump right. administration, um, a, um, a, a, a nascent impeachment movement. Uh, right. um, there's a couple of new books out talking about a citizen's guide. Cast Sunstein has a book out called Citizen's Guide to Impeachment, mm-hmm. um, amongst other <laughs> things. Uh, there, there are a few other folks writing about this. Um, if you, what are uh, this is Bethel? We're, we, we don't gamble here, right. but <laughs> what are the odds of impeachment? Uh, I mean, well, first of all, we need to define impeachment again. And we've talked about this before. Yeah, yes, true. please. But do we mean impeachment by the House, yeah. which happened to Bill Clinton, for example, yes. right, where he was Correct. impeached by the House, and then you have a case in the Senate? Or do we mean impeachment and removal, which is when the Senate actually votes to remove? So the House can impeach with a simple majority. Yes. Um, the Senate can only remove with a two-thirds majority, right? 
um, which means, you know, in theory, if, if one party gains control of the House when the other president's in, the president from the other party's in, then it's pretty easy to impeach the president if you really, really want to. Um, it's very rare for a party to have two-thirds majority in the Senate. It's been probably New Deal era since that happened, I think. So, yep. um, so you know, the, you really have to get bipartisan support to get him out in the Senate. And, of course, with Clinton, I mean, there was nothing, you know, close to that. The, I think the most votes they got in any article was 50 votes, which was 17 short of what they would have had to have. So uh, I would say the odds of impeachment and removal are extremely low. Um, Thank you. I think that, you know, the odds of impeachment in his four years are higher um, just because there's a decent chance the Democrats could gain control of the House in 2018. And if these kind of things keep coming forward, I wouldn't be shocked to see them do that, um, especially since, you know, again, there's precedent for this. Republicans did it in 99 with Clinton. Um, but I don't think it goes anywhere in the Senate unless Donald Trump really starts tanking um, with the public and the Republicans decide it's in their self-interest. But again, I, I just I haven't seen them come anywhere close to making that calculation so far. And I, I think they're going to decide they, they have to ride it, whatever it is, um, you know. Yeah, Andy, I'm even more pessimistic than you are. Uh, I would, um, I'm pretty close. I, I, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't gamble, but I'd be pretty no, close to betting my mortgage that Donald <laughs> Trump would not be removed from office via yeah. impeachment. Yeah, uh, we we just got done saying, talking about how the president's the leader of their party, how Republicans have right. fundamentally not abandoned the Trump administration or the Trump administration, that even uh, that Trump was able to pull the Republican Party to mm -hmm. Roy Moore, for example, yeah. as good evidence that he. Uh, that they're supporting him. Uh, high 80%, uh, right. you know, 88, 89% somewhere of Republicans still mm -hmm. um, have a favorable opinion of Donald Trump right. uh, within the electorate. And you would need a significant number of, of Republicans mm -hmm. to vote against a sitting Republican president for right. removal. I think it's more likely that you get a 25th Amendment scenario. Yeah. If, if anything. Yeah. And the 25th Amendment, by the way, concludes a provision where uh, the president's cabinet can remove a president from office if they feel that the president has become incapacitated in some mm -hmm. way. Now, mm -hmm. that's a, supposed to be designed for physical health issues, but right. presumably could also be used for mental health issues right. if, if Trump became delusional yeah. or um, uh, deeply erratic, pres yeah. presumably. Um, he could he could be removed that way, yeah. but and this this is the thing that we've said we'll say it, we'll say it some more. Impeachment is a political process; it's yeah. not a judicial process. No. And even if Donald Trump uh, <clears throat> does something which is criminal, impeachment is not the necessary recourse no. for a criminal activity no. by the president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I would I would tend to agree with that, and especially because uh, one of the interesting discussions I've been seeing, particularly on. Um, and, and left-leaning um, magazines and things is basically an argument against impeachment, um, even if the Democrats take right. the House. Yeah. Um, and essentially a big reason for that being um, they basically the Democrats would much rather run against Trump in 2020 mm -hmm. than they would against Mike Pence or Paul right. Ryan. Um, right. And so it just makes a whole mm -hmm. lot more sense for them in terms of um, – and it's not even that long of a game, but in the slightly longer game, <laughs> um, just to go ahead and leave Trump in office and let his scandals and uh, things build up and just make it, you know, all, all the easier, uh, yeah. at least at least as their their hope, of course, um, to, you know, to put in whoever that whoever they nominate in 2020 for 2020. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that logic makes sense. Um, towards this end. Uh, I have a legal question for you guys. If you guys don't want to touch a legal question here, mm -hmm. we got a couple of um, Supreme Court cases coming down the coming down the pipe here. Here's your chance to put on a robe and, and pretend. <laughs> um, can the president obstruct justice? Yes. Yeah. You sure? Because yes. <laughs> the president's lawyer seems to think that maybe it's not possible for the president to obstruct justice. Yeah. I think this. I think. I mean, uh, in some ways, uh, I'll just so if I can just be silly for a couple of seconds. Please, please. As soon as I as soon as I saw that, like my first thought, uh, because Star Wars is about to come out, was you know there's the scene in Revenge of the Sith where Palpatine is is basically already won, and the Jedi are going, but the Jedi are going to try to arrest him. Mm -hmm. And uh, on on what charges? I'm not sure. It, apparently, being a Sith Lord is illegal and is a charge worthy of arrest by the Jedi Knight. 
it's it um, seems religiously intolerant. It does. It, it does is very religiously intolerant. intolerant. Um, I know you're on increasingly the idea that the Jedi's are the bad guys in, yeah, in Star Wars. Th- there is a case to be made. There's I've a, read some compelling theocracy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a it's true. Um, nonetheless, uh, yeah, yeah, for, for 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 uh, regardless of whether we think Sith lording is a crime, um, he. Um, um, basically, basically, Mace Windu comes in and he says he's placing him under arrest, and he invokes the authority of the Senate, and uh, and Palpatine comes back. His line is, "I am the Senate," mm-hmm. right? And so that was sort of immediately what 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 came to mind when I when I yep. saw this defense of the president was basically, you know, he's saying he can't obstruct justice because he is the justice or something like that. <laughs> I, am like, I am justice. I am justice. It's like yeah. ah, that, that 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 doesn't quite work. Um, I think you missed your movie reference. I think this is actually Judge Dredd. I am the law. I am the law. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'm, I guess I'm too. Um, yeah, you're too into pop culture. I'm not. I'm not cultured enough to be into. So anyway. <laughs> you're fine, missing Judge Dredd. You're, you're good. <laughs> At any rate, uh, I mean, I mean, part part of what I mean, just just to see sort of the absurdity of this. Um, you know, you can you could sort of imagine the same thing being said by a Supreme Court justice. I mean, mm-hmm. what if a Supreme Court yeah. justice were being impeached and said, "You can't impeach me based on misconduct in the Constitution. I get to interpret. I'm the one who interprets the Constitution." Right. Um, or in the same way, you know, you could think about members of Congress. You know, they could basically say, "You can't, um, you know, rule what we're doing unconstitutional. You know, we get to we get to vote on what the laws are and for the Constitution." And you know, basically, what this all boils down to is the question of the rule of law, right. and mm-hmm. it really uh, boils down and and basically. Basically, what that what the issue is is um, is 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 it individuals who get to decide uh, what's what the law is and how the law gets to be applied, or are there actual rules that are supposed to be implemented and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, and, and they basically limit leaders' power? Um, and so when we, you know, just to sort of go back to, you know, civics 101 here, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, the president is not there to essentially, you know, at least in at least in the sort of you know mm-hmm. per- perfect world the president is not supposed to be there to make the law the president is supposed to be there to enforce the laws right. and so what that means then is that if the president fails to enforce the laws or if the president themselves is guilty of breaking laws then they absolutely can be held accountable for that and that's why you have you know just a once again sort of civics 101 this is why we have the system of checks and balances this is why the other branches exist so that if one of the branches violates the laws goes against the constitution or some other statutes and mm-hmm. limits mm-hmm. that basically there can be um, people there to hold them accountable and so and which is exactly what um, uh, you know basically what's be what what uh, what's potentially taking place with the Mueller investigation yeah and we're so we're supposed to be I mean to sum all that up a government of laws and not of men right and I think that, you know it's, it's pretty obvious that the president does not get to define justice I mean to Mitchell's point yeah. it's his job to execute those laws right to carry them out um, but he doesn't get to sort of make them and decide how to interpret them and all that and we have you know, the judicial branch to do part of that. We have the legislative branch to do part of it. And and that is very deliberate, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is not sort of just his province. So, I mean, you know, the president, um, you know, can execute laws, for example, that lead to the death of people, right, through, um, through you know, military actions, through executions in the court system, right? He can certainly choose to have those carried out. Um, but that doesn't give him the right to kill someone, right? Um, and that's kind of an obvious example, but I make it just to say, I mean, like, that's that's what we're talking about, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so if he can't just, like, arbitrarily kill somebody, even though he has the power to kill people in legitimate ways, right, um, in ways that are allowable by the law, um, he can also obstruct justice. There, there are right and wrong uses of his mm-hmm. function as, you know, the you know the person who does have a lot of responsibility for executing justice in this country. Um, and therefore, yes, he can obstruct justice, contrary to his lawyer's yeah. interpretation. In some ways, this is revealing a potential dark side of populism. Donald Trump is a populist uh, in addition to being a Republican. Right. And one of the dark sides of populism is that it it tends to make it easier to rely on the charisma of a single individual Mm. or the charisma of a powerful leader. And in, and this is Mitch's territory, but here, mm-hmm. when those when those leaders become driven not by a respect for the rule of law, right. but by their own personal values and charisma, it's demagoguery, right? Yep. And um, our system is explicitly designed to defeat demagogues, or at least to mm-hmm. avoid demagoguery. Mm-hmm. Um, although, given modern media and the bully pulpit of the president, the growing power of the president over the last... Uh, several decades, we could probably say mm-hmm. that our system is weaker against demagogues than it's been in a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is that uh, 
we know that political scientists know that um, prosperity and even good democracy comes from respect for rule of law. Right. That um, that if you are pulled over for a for a traffic violation, it's because you yeah. violated the rule, not because you are an opponent of the political system. Right. Right. And trying to kind of. Um, uh, trying to maintain that respect for rule of law, making sure that no one's above the law, is a hallmark of um, is a hallmark of good government, mm-hmm. and is a harbinger of all kinds of other uh, productive elements of mm-hmm. of, of governance. And mm-hmm. so we we don't we shouldn't wish that away, even if we really like the person in office right. and wish that they could come in and shake things up and clean things up. The rule of law needs to be maintained above any personage. Right, right, and that's where I think I mean both parties have in many ways compromise their moral authority on this. I mean, we you know, Mitch mentioned earlier the example of Bill Clinton, right? And I think even as the Democratic Party, you know, forces John Conyers out and they really did push him out, um, you know, you're also reminded of the fact that they didn't push out Bill Clinton because he felt too useful and too important to them. Um, and that I think that does undermine their moral authority to make these arguments against um, people like Trump and Roy Moore. Um, and conversely, the Republicans made these arguments against um, Bill Clinton and those feel like, um, much less sincere arguments now when you see, hear some of the same people defending um, this kind of behavior. And I think, you know, I mean, like to kind of transition to another thing we wanted to at least mention today, um, that's a good illustration of what we've been talking about, right? I mean, think about the recent fall from power of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. right? And that illustrates right, what Andy, we want to avoid. are you stepping on Chris Moore's IR corner? <laughs> I am stepping on, no, this is more compared to politics. <laughs> All right, bring it on. Let's do this. Let's do politics, this. I've been so waiting to get off the um, American shores. But, Let's you know, do it. So Robert Mugabe, I mean, was the um, long-serving leader of Zimbabwe. He'd been in power since um, they gained independence in 1980. So he is the last of the original um, post-colonial leaders of an African country to still hold power, and he just lost it a couple weeks ago. Um, at the age of 93, um, so it was... So he and John Conyers can hang out right? a little bit. They can, <laughs> they can go do something, yeah. Um, and so anyway, so Mugabe lost power, and you know one of the things that's interesting about this is, I mean, how he lost it, which is not through rule of law, not through sort of established processes, but because he was trying to basically put his wife in a position to succeed him. She's 42 years his junior, so she's only... 51, so that makes Roy Moore look I, I relatively good John here. John Conyers, Roy Moore. You go hang out with Roy Moore. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, Roy Moore's like, wow, that's um, that's a big gap, man. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I mean, you know, Moore's were only like 20 years younger. Anyway. Okay. Um, that's, uh, um, yeah. all right. I don't so, need this mental image. Let's go so, on. Um, so he was trying to get his wife in there at, at the age of 51, which the party was not really enthused about because, you know, um, they weren't big fans of her. And so they basically... Um, got the military to remove him as the military kept insisting this is not a coup. This is not a coup. <laughs> um, you know, they, this is a situation of peaceful aplomb. Um, and so anyway, but they, they basically did a coup and removed him and installed his vice president. And so what you've gotten here is not a move toward rule of law. It's not a move away from dictatorship. It's not a move toward democracy. It's an installation of a younger dictator who can kind of keep the, the party coffers um, filled for the people who want them to be filled um, keep the military in their position of advantage, um, and basically keep everything running under, in the Mugabe-like system without Mugabe, um, and that's what you've you've had happen in Zimbabwe. And so that's you know it's it's a it's it's an illustration of what happens I think in a country where um, you know all such checks on power are removed. And Mugabe functionally did whatever he wanted. The you know military, the legislative branch agreed to this, and when it came to a point where he was no longer able to keep doing this, and where he was trying to install someone they viewed as uh, contrary to the interests, then you remove him and you put in another guy who could do the same thing. Um, but that's, you know, that's certainly very far from what we aspire to um, in the United States and in any country that you know, values a democratic system of government where the people have some say in who gets to, to govern them, uh, them. And so it's a, it's in that sense, I think a good illustration of, of again, the extreme version. We're nowhere close to that, thankfully in this country, but, um, but we maybe are a little closer than we used to be. And that's not a good thing. Uh, I just want to say a couple quick things about Zimbabwe, and then I want to switch to a different IR topic. All right. But the first thing is that this is, I think, by any reasonable standard, a Praetorian coup. Mm-hmm. And um, Praetorian sure. coups usually involve militaries, yep. and they involve the military essentially uh, stepping in to maintain some kind of status quo in the right. political system. Right. And that's exactly what's happened. We've seen that Mugabe's pres- uh, vice president has basically kept Mugabeist supporters in power uh, mm-hmm. and continued the same yep. uh, system of patronage uh, and paying off the military and paying off key individuals yep. uh, to keep the system in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it's the vice president, and yes, it's not the, his Mugabe's wife, and that's because Mugabe's wife was was perceived as being critical of the military, mm-hmm. and his vice president wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the first thing we could say is this maintains the status quo. 
except one of the clearest predictors of a coup in a country is a prior coup in a country. Mm-hmm. And the, the Zimbabwe had Mugabe in power for 37 years, mm-hmm. and now it's significantly more vulnerable. Just like a person who's had a heart attack is vulnerable yep. for another heart attack. Right. Some, um, it's significantly more vulnerable for, um, yep. for a future military coup. If this vice, pre- this vice president doesn't have the power and the capital that Mugabe built up over time, if the military is unhappy with him, expect to see another coup. Yeah. And he's, and he's, I mean, like, so he's comparatively young compared to Mugabe, but he's not young. He's 75, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's right. There's a very good chance that, you know, once the military gets this idea, that we could do this and they pull it off and right. it becomes a much more tempting alternative the next time there's a crisis. Um, and there'd been crises before and, you know, the military had always just supported what Mugabe did. Um, we'll see if they do the same for his successor. Right. Guys, um, it's time for my, my check-in with, uh, uh, the remnants of the axis of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, Iraq is, Iraq is no longer a member of the axis of evil, but Iran and North Korea still seem to be there. Thank you. Bush administration. Yeah. 2000, circa 2002, uh, North Korea, uh, since we've last talked to you all has tested uh, another ballistic missile. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you a few things to make you worried and a few things to make you less worried. So, uh, this was, uh, by any reasonable measure, North Korea's best, uh, ballistic missile test to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, the missile traveled over a hundred miles in, uh, greater altitude than one of their missiles has traveled before. I think it was 2,800 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sufficiently high to be higher in the air than the International Space Station. And, yeah. uh... This leads um, ballistics experts to believe that if such its, if its trajectory is flattened out, it would basically open up all of the continental United States, uh, with the exception of perhaps New Hampshire and Maine, um, to, uh, um, to a North Korean uh, ballistic missile strike. Washington, D.C. is definitely within range of, of this missile if it's – there's a couple uh, big ifs. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly the West Coast is well within range. Uh, we here in Minnesota perhaps could could possibly mm-hmm. be within range. Here's the here's the issue uh, with that is in all likelihood um, there was no warhead waiting on this missile. Uh, they certainly was there certainly was not a nuke. They would have they wouldn't have put a nuclear warhead on the missile to test it. They have right. a scant number of them, but they could have for realistic test reasons placed an equivalent amount of weight um, mm-hmm. on this warhead. It's unlikely that they did so. Uh, because they wanted to get maximum range for maximum political effect, mm-hmm. and so chances are this was an empty, empty missile. Uh, an actually loaded missile may have less range. Now that that probably comforts people in D.C. and probably doesn't comfort people in, say, Seattle and San Francisco. Right. But that is a significant consideration. The second consideration that might make you feel better is that <laughs> it's not at all clear that North Korea has mastered the art of miniaturization yet. And this sounds silly, but is, in fact, incredibly important. We know that North Korea has a nuclear warhead. We know that North Korea has ballistic missiles. What we don't know is if they have a small enough warhead to put on a ballistic missile for delivery purposes. Mm. And lacking that, all the, this whole conversation, again, becomes moot. North Korea doesn't have a way to deliver a nuclear warhead to the United States. Mm. So we don't know. Um, it's possible they do. And if they do, they have every interest in showing us that they do. But... Uh, if they don't, um, they might have an interest in, 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 uh, in suggesting that. So um, a little bit of cause for hope, a little bit of cause for concern there, too. Um, on, the, on, the other, on the other side of the pond, um, we have uh, leaders reacting badly uh, to, this, uh, to this event. Um, Lindsey Graham appears ready to invade North Korea by himself uh, to get rid of the Kim Jong-un administration. Um, that sounds like kind of an interesting B-movie plot. <laughs> like Lindsey Graham invading North Korea, I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like Canadian bacon in North Korea. If you ever saw it's Canadian, cr- it's bacon. Canadian bacon with uh, yeah, with, with somebody with who's not as bourbon. funny. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> Lindsey Graham was my um, former representative, by the way. When I was oh, in, okay. um, College, he was he represented the um, district that I I lived in. So he appears to be auditioning for the role of the John McCain Hawk of the Senate. Um, yes, well, but um, <laughs> so. The Trump administration, and this is this is where political science science comes back into the news here, uh, is being very um, provocative towards North Korea. North Korea is responding by being very provocative towards the Trump administration. And Rocket one, man. yeah, there's there's been insults traded. There's been mm-hmm. um, uh, fiery dialogue exchanged. Those sorts of things. He's a daughtered. What's that? He's a daughtered. 
He's yeah. he is a, a, a dotard, yes. Uh, well, at least he's accused of being a dotard by Kim Jong Un, which <laughs> which made, that should have been the word of the year because that means much more Americans will come and say the word dotard. Yeah, uh, like, what is that? Okay, but all that to say, it's not at all clear that the status quo has fundamentally shifted. Right. Uh, what North Korea wants is a big question. And it seems to me that North Korea doesn't want to die in a nuclear blaze of glory. Um, <laughs> seems improbable. North Korea can't use, uh, and that's what will happen if North Korea uses a weapon offensively against the United oh, yeah. States. Yeah. What North Korea wants is what all dictators want, which is to live a long time and die quietly in their beds. Right. Um, and Mugabe almost got there. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what Kim Jong-un wants. And, and having a nuclear weapon increases the likelihood under normal circumstances, that he will die quietly in his bed. Mm-hmm. And right. attempts by the United States to saber-rattle, to convince them to give up their nuclear weapons, could inadvertently lead, lead the United States to war. Mm-hmm. It also potentially has the chance of scaring the North Koreans into giving up their nuclear weapons, but the, the credibility that such a threat requires is so extreme that it, it really does require both China and Russia as well as Japan and South Korea yeah. to sign off on such a threat, and we're not there yet. No. And it, so we're kind of we're, – we're in this hard place where both sides appear to be benefiting from increasingly bellicose talk, mm-hmm. but neither side really wants to act on that bellicosity. Right. Is there – I mean, I, I can't think of any former nuclear powers. Like, yeah, are there? Which, yes, there are. Okay. Would you like to hear okay. them? Sure, please do. <laughs> As an IR person, I'm required not only to memorize them but to get them tattooed oh, on my good. left bicep. Um, oh, nice. Here are the countries that have had nukes and gotten rid of them. Okay. South Africa. Had yeah, uh, actually had there. nuclear weapons okay. and, and, and divested themselves of them. Interestingly, in 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 the in, in the most racist way possible, uh, South Africa had nuclear uh, weapons under under the apartheid government. And, they want the and when it became clear that they yeah. were going to lose their the white minority was going to lose their dominance of the government, they got rid of the nukes before the black like, Africans you, could get like, hold do of you them. Like, Sell them on eBay. Like, what do you do with nukes when you decide? Like, I don't want to be. Actually, they worked anymore. with the. Uh, they were. I, I don't remember. Who, I don't remember which great power they worked with. But they worked with. I don't. I don't think it was the United States. I think it was Russia to disassemble them okay. and, and to recycle the material, okay. the fissile okay. material. Okay. Um, don't quote me on that though. It's, okay. It might have been someone else. Um, That's not on your bicep, apparently. Several. <laughs> no. Um, uh, both Brazil and Argentina at one point had nuclear weapons programs, though they never progressed to the point of producing a warhead. Yeah. Okay. Australia had a nuclear pro- a nuclear program under the auspices of the British okay. uh, nuclear program, and then they d- they abandoned it. Okay. Uh, and importantly, three other countries possessed nuclear weapons at the end of the desol- uh, dissolving of the Soviet Union: uh, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and. Ah. Uh, because they were Uzbekistan, part of Uzbekistan, I believe, okay. and all three of them voluntarily chose to ge- to give those weapons back to Russia or okay. to disassemble them, and that was uh, part of the Nun Luger plan. Okay. So okay. there's there's a there's a okay. decent number of countries who have had nukes and given them up. Okay. Notably, yeah. though, no countries with immediate existential threats. So right. India and Pakistan right. have not gotten rid of theirs. Israel's right. not gotten rid of theirs. North Korea seems unlikely they would get rid of yeah. theirs. Uh, the but really, I mean, so what you're, I'm hearing is only South Africa actually had nukes and was a truly independent country and got rid of them. And that was for deeply racial reasons. Because, yes, I would because say the others true. were satellites of the Soviets yeah. or they had programs but never got there. But you could imagine those satellites seeing an incredible advantage to having right. arsenals under their control. Right. Yeah. But on, basically the, on the other hand, Russia had way more under their control. Yeah. And the question is whether you want to make them even angrier <laughs> about the fact that you just left. <laughs> and, well, furthermore, Russia was reeling, and the United States right. was offering a giant bag right. of money to give up right. the nukes. And, right. the, and fr- they were worth more to be sold than they were to yeah. be possessed. Right. Yeah. So maybe Kim Jong-un just wants his giant bag of money. That's true. Well, and that's one option, is mm-hmm. that maybe mm-hmm. that all he really wants is, is concessions on trade deals and concessions yeah. on, on, on aid. Yeah. And if we just give him those things, then he, he tones down the rhetoric and the yeah. it goes away. But um, – We've now entered into sort of a Bellicosti spiral here where mm-hmm. – and by the way, I want to be clear. A Bellicosti spiral is not the same thing as a security dilemma or an arms race. It's just that we've entered such a level of rancorous talk, it's hard to imagine Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump pulling out of it and becoming more civil. Right. What right. we might get is just three more years of, of angry talk and occasional ballistic missile tests with very little that actually comes of it. Yeah. Unless – the Trump administration, I would say, inadvisedly tries to preemptively replace the Kim Jong-un regime. And then you actually could see a nuclear weapon being used. Not against the United States, but probably against South Korea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Guys, it's this is probably our last podcast before the holidays. And Unless something really, really big happens. If something really big happens, you <laughs> yes. can bet we'll break the glass on the alarm, but, we'll sound the alarm, we'll pull these guys yeah, in. But otherwise, <laughs> we may have one or two other things to do next Cri- couple Cri- Christmas, Christmas morning in our jammies, we'll be here. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Mitchell's jammies are going to be in Ohio. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. it's terrible. Um, but I want to do a couple Christmas things. We started off with uh, Christmas carols. Um, I want to, uh, as people are doing their holiday shopping, Black Friday has come and gone, Cyber Monday has come and gone, but it's not too late to do your holiday shopping. Do you guys have any book recommendations uh, or, or just generally media recommendations for people looking uh, to supplement their political knowledge over the course of the holiday season? Yeah, I mean, I, so I just read um, a few weeks back a book um, by a very left-leaning author, but I thought, um, but looking into sort of the right-leaning part of the country. It was really an interesting exploration. So it's called Strangers in Their Own Land by an author named Arlie Hochschild, who's a prominent sociologist. Um, and it's so she's somebody who's got, you know, the real academic kind of bona fides, but, but it was a very accessible book. I mean, it was very easy to read, um, and largely because it was really a story. And so what Hochschild wanted to do was basically say, how does the other part of the country think? I mean, she's in her very sort of, you know, um, left-leaning bubble out on the West Coast, I mean, Berkeley, that kind of area, right? And... Um, and she, said, she has go, seen hemp lattes. What's that? Yeah, there, si- sipping her hemp latte and so forth. And she, so she decided to go to basically to go to Louisiana and spend a lot of time there, and really get to know people, talk to people. And it's a very, um, it's a very sympathetic account, right? And since that she's she spends time with people, she really listens. She really tries to hear what's your story and what's the what's the common story. I mean, why do people um, in our country think so differently about politics and about society mm-hmm. and about you know, where this country is and where we should be going. Um, and why do, why do we have tensions in our interests? And I think for most of us, we do, right? We, we vote based on certain interests and we ignore other interests. And there, you know, that's a common theme across a lot of voters. Um, and so in that book, she does a really, really nice job of exploring that. Um, I also read, you know, the year ago or so, probably um, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, which I also enjoyed, and which is a much more of a right-leaning perspective. Um, which and, and they focus on you know what you would kind of expect in terms of themes based on their political perspectives. Um, his is more of a personal story. Hers mm-hmm. of, of his own story. Um, hers is other people's stories. Um, but I mean they're both really interesting. But I think in terms of sort of systematic analysis, um, hers has a lot of advantages. So I really enjoyed that. I also read a book by a former uh, Bethel prof recently that I really found helpful, and that was um, more focusing on faith issues, but also related to being in the academy called The Myth of Certainty by um, Dan Taylor. It's an older mm-hmm. book, about 30 years old, um, but mm-hmm. really good. Definitely recommend it. Um, so those are my two. Strangers in Their Own Land by Arlie Hochschild, Myth of Certainty by Dan Taylor. Yeah. Well done. Hitch. Uh, the book, and this is actually one that I haven't uh, – so the one the one book, I guess, if you're talking about, like, recommendations mm-hmm. – um, I'll be honest. I actually haven't read that many popular level books here lately. <laughs> um, oh, come on, it's not like you're busy it's just so nerdy. having a kid and trying to teach three. Four, I know. Right? So yeah. So so I, so I will be honest and say and say that I'm a little bit behind in terms of um, some of the <laughs> stuff that has come out recently. But the book that I'm most looking forward to um, getting to over the break, I will um, plug this one because I have read a fair amount about it, and uh, and also is Alan Jacobs' How to Think. Mm. Um, so mm-hmm. I've been, um, follow, so this, so, uh, Jacobs has, <clears throat> so basically Alan Jacobs is, um, an, uh, an academic who's, he's moved around a little bit. I was originally from Alabama and actually I'll be honest and say, I can't remember exactly where he is right he's now. A Baylor University. He's a Baylor. That's right. There we go. Okay. Yeah. So at any rate, we hired him away from Wheaton. Okay. There I'm we go. Baylor alum. Yeah. So, so at any rate, uh, what, what, uh, Jacobs has just written is, is a book called, called how to think where basically he is. Um, arguing that a lot of a lot of what uh, a lot of the problems that we're seeing in, in American rhetoric right now is that people have basically just decide, sort of retreated into these tribal bubbles, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of people have been talking about that. A lot of people have noted this. That's he's you know he's that's not the particularly original part of what he's talking about. Basically, what he's trying to write about is how do you get outside that? Um, because a lot of times what you'll see is people will sort of decry this. They'll say, oh, you know. Um, this, this is such a big problem. But what Jacobs wants to get at is he wants to say, how can we actually reclaim this art of thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of a lot of what he's uh, talking about, and what I've already read, um, you know, from his both from his writings on this and also from interviews and things like that that I've seen, is, is a lot of what he's getting at is that this is this is not 
this is not easy. It's much more fun and easy um, to basically be somebody who just sort of knee jerks um, into, you know, these other people are bad, my people are good, how can I find some way to justify what my people are doing? Mm -hmm. And and instead what he's trying to, what he's trying to give people is um, basically sort of a crash course in, in slowing down. And, uh, and and basically trying to learn to use um, just 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 basic methods of like informal logic and things like that mm-hmm. to try to say how can we actually um, think about these things and and how can we how can we listen carefully and take mm-hmm. and take other people seriously. So anyway, so that's what I'm uh, one of the things that I'm I'm looking forward to um, getting into uh, in terms of in terms of books that. It, uh, that I have been reading, um, <laughs> and I mean, there's, there's, you know, basically, there's, there's, there's a number of books that I that I think are really great. Um, but uh, one book that I've actually been thinking, um, uh, thinking a little bit more about, actually, is uh, is, is basically Bonhoeffer's um, Letters and Papers from Prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, one of the things that one of the reasons that I've been kind of going back through and looking at that um, text again, which of course is an old classic. Right. Um, is is basically just thinking about um, what 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 uh, what Bonhoeffer has to say when he feels that Christians are not following through with their principles, mm. and particularly you know what, one of the things that Bonhoeffer is worried about is and, and that some people I think misinterpret with Bonhoeffer is Bonhoeffer basically has a number of very very critical things to say about religion in mm-hmm. that text, and I think a lot of what he's getting at is just to say that basically the German German Christians had basically abandoned. Um, the core ethics of the faith, um, mm-hmm. in many ways, and 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 uh, part of the reason that I've been drawn to this, of course, is thinking about uh, issues with Roy Moore mm-hmm. um, and things like that, and thinking about how what what do we say to Christians who seem to, you know, be okay with somebody who mm-hmm. is very clearly um, morally dubious. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds great. I have two recommendations too to keep it keep it kind of nice and even. Yeah, okay. Good. Um, the first one we recommend is if you're looking for something that kind of gets you up to speed on the state of world affairs, but you don't want to uh, invest in uh, a lovely course at Bethel University, or you don't want to uh, um, spend uh, a fortune on the Economist and um, New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and doing a deep dive into uh, global affairs, uh, let me recommend a book by Richard Haas called A World in Disarray. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book came out earlier this year, just before, or uh, actually came out just before the, the 2016 presidential election, so it's just about a year old. But Haas looks at what he what he thinks of as both the disintegration mm-hmm. of the international system, the, the post-Cold War system that emerged in uh, the late 19, or the 1990s, and how that system now is, is under stress. Mm-hmm. Um, Possibly per, uh, because of the United States' own doing, but also because because of the rise of China, but also how that system endures in some ways, and how to renew that system. Haas is a Republican, although um, uh, I believe he was a Never Trumper during the campaign, uh, and uh, he's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, and so he's an okay. establishment Republican foreign policy wonk, and somebody who's taken seriously. And mm-hmm. it's a good book, and it's mm-hmm. it's very readable, and it has broad coverage too. Nice. On the other side, um, I've read the. Um, I haven't read this yet. So this is a tentative endorsement, <laughs> but I've read the first two volumes of James K. Smith's um, uh, Cultural Liturgy uh, trilogy. Oh, is the third yeah. one out? The third one is out, oh, um, okay. and it's sitting on the bookshelf now, waiting to be read. And so the right. the first two books are Imagining the Kingdom and Desiring the Kingdom. Actually, uh, and um, this third uh, book is called Awaiting the King: Reforming Public Theology, and. Uh, Smith does a lot of things in these mm-hmm. books, but amongst the things he does is, is expand on this idea that he's already uh, offered in a book called We Are What We Worship, which is mm-hmm. um, this notion that both for the Christian Academy, where we sit here at, right. at Bethel University, but also for the church in general, um, we need to take better account of being thoughtful about not, not just how we worship, but what we worship. Mm-hmm. And the ideas and the norms and the values we instantiate right. in worship as well as our daily lives uh, intersect. And the praxis uh, associated with worship extends beyond the church service. Mm-hmm. And that we need to be cognizant and aware of that. And I, I find that a very compelling kind of argument, you know, as we, especially as we enter the holiday season and um, uh, American retail is collapsing. But there's still probably a, a, a time where I'll be walking through a mall or something. And just the way that the mall and the way that 
Costco and these other kind of uh, environs of, of commercial mm-hmm. capitalism are themselves worshipful acts, worshipful of, 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 of acquisition and acquisitiveness. And it isn't just a screed against, against um, materialism, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of ways we worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of things we worship, and, and and Smith's ideas about that I think are pretty powerful. So yeah. I'd check that out. It's um, uh, I don't think you need to start in. It's, it's not a, um, it's a trilogy, but I don't mm-hmm. know you need to start with the first one. But if you do, uh, that's desiring the kingdom, and then imagine the kingdom, and this new one is awaiting the king. So I'll be curious to hear what you think of that. His for the, for those listeners who may not be as into um, academic books as. Um, but we we are in our profession. Um, I think Smith's "You Are What You Love," which came out just last year, does a nice job of making this more accessible. Yes, that's um, true. He summarizes a lot of these big ideas from I think from all three books to some extent, um, and it's just an easier read. He gets a lot. He does a lot less with like sort of going into all the background sources and just kind of says, "Here's the takeaway. Here's the big ideas." Um, and true. if you want to sort of know where he, how he got there, then by all means read the trilogy. Um, but yeah, I'll be curious to hear how you like that one. Yeah, he's an interesting thinker. Sure. He cracks me up because he wrote the trilogy initially to be the dumbed down version of the phil- of the right. philosophical treatise. <laughs> and realized that that was and that was dumbed down thin. version of the dumbed and down. And so version. then, so the, so the so you are what you love is is the uh, simplified version of the simplified version. It's it's the prelude to the prelude. James is um, a little nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, one more thing, guys. One of my other Christmas carols that I really, really hate is my grown-up Christmas wish, which I most associate <laughs> with Amy Grant. Um, and it got me thinking about your, my Amazon wish list. And holding aside the beauty contestant responses like world peace or love and harmony, uh-huh. if you could put something on your political Christmas wish list, what would you add? Well, you know, you gave us a heads up on this, which was good because I am terrible at these questions. So I actually, as I was driving home yesterday, I thought about it and I, I put more thought into this than I should have probably. But um, <laughs> I realized, like, as I was thinking about different requests, I thought that wouldn't really solve anything. We'd just end up with other problems. And so I kept thinking about different things. So I think what I'm going with here is um, I want us to get back to being able to have a shared set of facts, which mm. sounds really basic, but um, having facts that we agree on, it feels like we are. We're in such a fake news era where we don't um, we don't agree on facts, and so I guess I want um, whatever the digital 2017 version is of Walter Cronkite. Um, I want that. So yeah, it's not going to be Matt Lauer. <laughs> it's not going to be Matt Lauer. That is I think, very clear. Cool. Yeah, Mitch, what is it for you? Uh, for me, I think uh, I would like to see uh, the rise of uh, credible, um, serious Christian. Uh, uh, moral Christian voice on the right again. Um, mm. I think basically uh, after the last election, most um, moral voices on the right lost their credibility. Mm. Um, you think about some of the old standbys like James Dobson and things like that. Mm. And um, I think even if even if you're on the left, um, you know, I think uh, Douthat made this argument before: um, having a moral core um, to to basically the to conservatism is is really important to keep it from mm. just spiraling into a sort of un bridled, um, you know, racial nationalism. Mm. And uh, so basically that's that's sort of what I would like. I'd like to see somebody um, rise to prominence who can sort of um, have a major voice and, and in some ways take the reins um, that isn't morally compromised in that way. Yeah. It reminds me of um, one of our former colleagues here who passed away last year, G.W. Carlson. He used to come by and he liked to talk a lot. And um, he would come talk about this issue. But he used to tell me, he said, you know, I think that the debate we should be having in our country is between the moral liberals and the compassionate conservatives. Um, and he really liked to go on in that. And he was, and he was um, you know, much more left-leaning than I am, to put it mildly. But, um, he, you know, I thought that was a good point, right? I mean, th- people who take the moral issues of the country seriously, and, of course, GW's point was in part, I don't think that's really happening on either side, right, that neither mm-hmm. party is being dominated by those people. Yeah. They're being dominated by, you know, less ideal voices. And so, yeah, just... I don't know. That made me think of GW. So. Mm. I think of GW, you kind of need to bring him in. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I'm going to say this carefully because I come into this Christmas, this holiday season with a lot of political blessings. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is not just being thankful for the political situations that we find ourselves in, and recognizing that even in the midst of American rancorous politics, we still fundamentally have a democracy if we can keep it. Um, but uh, but also, I personally have a lot of you know of privilege in this society as a mm-hmm. white male, as someone who doesn't have to deal with um, 
sexual harassment, somebody who doesn't have to deal with uh, political disenfranchisement and racism, um, and a whole host of other issues that, are, that still rack America, I'm, I'm conscious of those things even as I say this. Mm-hmm. But I, I wish for um, agreeable dissent. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. America seems struck into in the um, between two very objectionable uh, mm-hmm. positions to be in. One, mm-hmm. which is um, wholehearted loyalty. Mm-hmm. I think we have a president who prizes loyalty and demands loyalty yep. and punishes those who are disloyal, and that strikes me as is profoundly problematic. Yep. At the same time, to oppose the president um, or to oppose a political party or a political movement seems to require a level of stridency and yep. uh, dismissiveness and incivility that I think is not only contrary to how I understand how I ought to act in the world, yep. um, but is, is fundamentally deleterious to, mm-hmm. to, to discourse and to political life. And so mm-hmm. I, I wish for some kind of way of both being um, – an ambitious dissenter of, politi- of, 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 of political opposition and uh, while at the same time uh, doing so in such an agreeable way that, um, that civ- civil discourse can continue. Mm-hmm. And part of, part of that requires that, those, those facts, Andy, that you're mm-hmm. wishing for, too. Mm-hmm. So maybe we get a package deal on Amazon. Said, you know, I mean, if we do, by all that, I mean, we definitely should get free shipping. So Yeah, free um, shipping. Even without Amazon Prime, we should get free shipping. So, <laughs> by drone. Um, so what you're saying, if I can you know, sort of use a Bethel buzzword here, you want our society to be more ironic, uh, to be able to uh, disagree no. without being disagreeable. That I, it's more than just disagree without being disagreeable, but yes. <laughs> yep. All right, and Check. convicted too. I've used ironic today. Check that off the list. <laughs> well, guys, um, I need to uh, I, I need to run off to my next meeting. Uh, thank you for this. Thank you for 2017. Uh, Election shock therapy will be back. We will be checking in as, as as both need arises and as we can't hold our tongues any longer. So thanks for listening. Uh, we we appreciate you. Send us your questions. Election shock therapy at gmail dot com, and uh, go Royals. Yeah.